The Peter Schiff Show. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, it's another day and another record high in the Dow Jones, although again, as I said on my last podcast, this is a nominal record high only. We closed at 37,305, but you know, in real terms, adjusted for inflation or priced in gold, which is real money, we're not even close to an all-time record high. Also today, the NASDAQ 100, not the overall NASDAQ composite, but the NASDAQ 100 closed at a new all-time record high, powered by big tech and the companies that are perceived to be the main beneficiaries of AI. And also, these indexes were kind of unfazed by some comments that came out of uh, a Fed official earlier in the morning that really rocked the gold market and the foreign exchange market. But they didn't seem to have much of an effect on the stock market. And I'm referring to comments by John Williams, who is the president of the New York Fed. He's also vice chair. So uh, he's not an insignificant voice on the FOMC. And he was interviewed um, by Steve Leisman on CNBC early this morning. In fact, I wasn't listening to the interview, but I was watching the markets and gold was up maybe, I don't know, seven, eight bucks or something like that um, before he spoke. The dollar was a little stronger, not much, predominantly against the euro. It was actually down against the Canadian dollar, the Aussie dollar. So it was up a little bit, but it got clobbered against the euro in the two prior days. In fact, the dollar index actually closed yesterday below 102. It was 101 spot, nine-ish or something like that. But that was the first time it was below 102 since uh, August. Uh, so we had seen you know, quite a bit of decline. It was a 2% decline, better than 2% on Wednesday and Thursday. And that's a you know, pretty big move in the foreign exchange world. I mean, it, it's not that big a move you know, in the stock market or you know, certainly like cryptocurrencies. But real currencies or even fake real currencies, fiat currencies, generally don't move that much in a single day. I mean, not you know, the dollar or in two-day period. They can. I mean, it's not unheard of, but it's, it is rare that you get that big a move. Uh, but the dollar index recovered 
you know, close the week back above 102 and a half, although still down on the week and charts looking looking weak as well. But I watched the dollar tank uh, on the futures markets and gold reversed. It gave up uh, its gain and had a four or five dollar loss, which by the end of the day turned into like an 18 uh, dollar loss. So a bigger decline, but we still closed the week positive and we closed north of $2,000 an ounce. Let me, I'm pulling up the, the price right now. Uh, I think it was um, uh, 2018 or something like that. I'm waiting. I got, I got a slow internet connection here. I forgot to uh, switch to the studio Wi-Fi when I when I walked in here, so um, it's taking a while to bring this bring this stuff up. Maybe I'll, I'll switch over to that Wi-Fi now, so I can get the price. So now now I've got no Wi-Fi at all because I just um, I just switched. Uh, yeah, so it closed at 2019. I was close 2019. 2020. But, you know, it closed above 2000. So I think the market is looking strong, despite the fact that it gave up the early morning gains. I think the high I saw this morning before we got uh, the words from the Fed, gold was about 2045, something like that. So what exactly did John Williams say that kind of spooked the markets? He walked back the comments that I spoke about on Wednesday. Because Steve Leesman asked him, you know, about the rate cuts. Because, of course, Powell just, you know, spent a whole press conference talking about the rate cuts and, you know, why they're going to happen and when they're going to happen and all this. And so John Williams' response is, well, you know, we're not really talking about rate cuts. Which, of course, is what Powell said in November. But he changed his mind a couple of days ago when he talked uh, profusely, profusely rather, about uh, about rate cuts. So this was kind of a shock to hear this. You know, two days after Powell talked so much about rate cuts, to have you know another FOMC member saying we're not even talking about rate cuts. Well, what the hell just happened uh, during the press conference? So I think that kind of spooked traders. He said, I, I wrote down a couple of quotes. He said it's premature to expect rates to fall in the opening months of 2024. Now, what are the opening months, January or February? I'm not sure anybody had penciled in cuts in January or February. I think maybe some people might be thinking March or April, but technically that may not fall within the the early months. So that might be an insignificant statement. But he also said, it's just premature to even be thinking about the question. And the question he was referring to is, rate cuts. He said, that's not the question that's in front of us. So he basically took rate cuts and put them back on the back burner. They, they, Powell moved them to the front of the stove on, on Wednesday. And so he's now pushing them back saying, no, 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 we're still focused on inflation and whether or not we, you know, we've whipped its butt. And if our policy is still tight enough, or if we you know, have to uh, have to tighten some more. And this caught a lot of people off guard. And so I think we got that that selling uh, from people who may have, you know, taken some positions and now they're second guessing those positions based on what apparently is an about face. 
But I don't really read a lot of significance into these comments. I mean, I, I, I think that he's out there not necessarily for damage control, uh, but to try to temper the enthusiasm. Uh, I think maybe after Powell you know, really saw the reaction in the markets to his statement, he thought maybe we ought to backtrack a little and you know, maybe send out a bad cop because you know, Powell is the good cop giving the markets what they want, you know, rate cuts, and now we have this bad cop that can say, oh, maybe not so fast, right? Maybe we're not going to have those rate cuts, trying to restrain the enthusiasm uh, to try to slow down the market front-running those rate cuts, which I think maybe, you know, Powell might have regretted his comment when he was specifically asked about this. Hey, what do you think about the markets, you know, doing your work for you and, and, and aggressively, you know, loosening financial conditions ahead of your official cuts. And he really didn't say anything about it. He, he, he wasn't bothered by, by rallies in the market at all or anything the market was doing uh, to ease uh, conditions. And maybe he thought, well, let's send somebody out there. Because, you know, I don't think any of these guys just go out and, and talk completely off the cuff. I think they have an idea what they're going to say. And then they, then they go out and, uh, and, and they say it. So I think he was sent out there to kind of, you know, push back a little bit. But I don't think that indicates that what Powell said yesterday or on Wednesday has been negated. No, no, no. I mean, I think a lot of thought went in to those FOMC minutes and the press conference and the Q&A. And I think it's clear that the Fed is done hiking rates. Now, they want to pretend that they're still data-dependent on inflation. But if they really were data-dependent, the data doesn't support cuts that they're talking about. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, the data still argues for more hikes. So they're not really data-dependent, but they can't let that cat out of the bag. They still have to get the markets thinking that they're vigilant and that they're on the job, and that if they do see some inflation, why they're willing and ready to hike rates, but they've indicated they're not going to do that. And those dot plots, you know, where you have all these FOMC members, what they do to get these dot plots is they're asked to put their own projections of where they think the Fed fund is going to be at a particular point in time. And if these guys are writing down lower numbers, it's because they think they're going to cut rates because the Fed funds rate doesn't just you know, arbitrarily move around. The only way the Fed funds rate will be as low as the FOMC members believe it will be a year from now, two years from now, is if they in fact vote to reduce the rate. So what they're really asking the members to, to write down is what do you think you're going to do with interest rates over the next year or two. And they're all writing down, we think we're going to reduce them. And I guess that would include John Williams. So they're all expecting to cut rates. And I would expect them to at least attempt to uh, fulfill that commitment. Now, again, I don't know if they're going to be able to deliver uh, as large a rate reduction as they're hoping. Because I think by the time they get around to the first rate cut, 
you know, whether it's March or April, I expect the U.S. dollar to be much lower than it is now. I mean, it could be down around 90 on the dollar index. I mean, we're at 102 now. If you look at a chart, 90-ish is where the short-term support looks like it's going to, uh, you know, come into play. And I think the markets are going to start front-running the cut. I mean, you're not going to wait for the cut. You're going to anticipate it, and you're going to price it in now. And so if the markets start marking down the dollar in advance of the first rate cut, that actually makes it harder for the Fed to cut if it's paying attention to what's happening to the dollar. Now, in general, it might not care about what's happening to the dollar. But what's happening to the dollar could be impacting other markets, like oil. I mean, oil had an up week today. It's now back above $70 a barrel. Let's see where it closed. It was down slightly today, but $71.78. And still, again, positive on the week. I think it ended last week below 70. So we're back above it. And I, I, I think we're headed much higher. And other commodity prices will also be influenced by a weak dollar. So that could complicate the Fed's ability to cut rates. And if they do cut rates, which they you know, very well may, depending on what else is happening, if they cut rates into a weakening dollar, they will just accelerate that weakness. And then the dollar index could break through 90 and head south pretty quick uh, down around 80. Anyway, on that note, let me take a quick break. We got a commercial and we'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All right, so we're talking about how the markets reacted to the Fed you know, effectively walking back some of what they promised at the FOMC press conference on, on Wednesday. But again, as I said before the break, uh, I think that what Powell said on Wednesday is far more significant than what John Williams said today. And the Fed does have a, a history of, of doing this type of, you know, quote unquote, damage control, saying one thing and then having somebody come out and kind of push back against that to you know, also create a little bit of uncertainty. I mean, maybe the Fed doesn't want the trade to be that easy. They want to introduce some type of risk. So instead of like, hey, you know, just sell the dollar, buy gold, buy risk assets, because these rate cuts are coming for sure, the Fed wants to interject a little bit of risk into the trade just to 
temper the speculative fervor and, and have, have these uh, comments come out. But again, I think the pivot has been made. I've been waiting for this for a long, long time. In fact, I, I would have imagined that it would have come a lot sooner uh, than this. I was actually surprised that the Fed was able to get interest rates this high uh, without uh, a major crisis. Now, in part, I was right about that. We did have the major crisis. We had it in March when all those banks, those regional banks started to fail like dominoes. Now, had the Fed not stepped up and, and made the mistake of bailing them out, which I, I guess I could have you know, predicted that. I, you know, I wasn't thinking that far. I mean, I knew the banks were going to have a problem. I just didn't know exactly what the Fed would do about it. But they were able uh, to uh, postpone this. But the day of reckoning is coming in March again because all of this stuff had a one-year sunset. So it wasn't like a permanent QE to save these banks. It was like a one-year you know, QE that's supposed to be reversed now, good luck. That ain't going to happen. And I don't, you know, the markets aren't even anticipating, you know, the significance of the fact that the whole thing was BS in March. Because if you're going to make a loan, and you know the banks that you have borrowed the money are never going to be able to pay it back, then why even pretend it's a loan in the first place? Well, because they didn't want to come out and say that they were doing QE and they were bailing these banks out by permanently, you know, absorbing their underwater assets, but that's exactly what they did. There's no way the Fed can give these assets back to these banks without bankrupting these banks. That's why they had to take the assets off their hands in the first place. And of course, they they gave them par for their assets. They're not worth par. They're worth maybe 60 cents or 70 cents. The banks can't take them back. (laughs) They need the full par. Uh, uh, So I think I was correct in that we wouldn't you know, the Fed couldn't do what it did without a crisis. It's just that the crisis was temporarily contained and the consequences postponed to 2024. And of course, the way they're going to try to postpone those consequences again is, I think, going to be a, a return to official quantitative easing, uh, which is maybe why they've, uh, you know, taken rate hikes really off the table. They're going to start to ease uh, and they're going to start to resume quantitative easing. Again, the amazing part is that these FOMC officials actually think that they can spend three years cutting interest rates, which is in effect easing monetary policy by cutting rates. Now, they're saying, well, it's not really easing monetary policy because they expect inflation to be coming down as well. But again, they're not talking about real inflation. They're talking about the personal consumption expenditure index or the core of that. Uh, and you know, it doesn't actually track real inflation. And when you're lending money or borrowing money and you're concerned about a real rate of interest, which would be the interest rate uh, minus what you're losing in purchasing power, you know, an inflation rate, it doesn't matter to you what some arbitrary government measure claims is the rate of inflation. That's irrelevant to reality. So if I'm going to loan you money and you're going to pay me back in the future, I'm concerned about how much value my money is actually going to lose between the time I loan it to you and the time you hopefully pay me back. 
And if I believe that the government's measures don't quite capture the degree to which my money is losing value, well, then I'm going to need an even bigger premium. Uh, you know, so to, to think that the Fed is going to be able to be reducing interest rates for the next two to three years and inflation is going to go down along with interest rates is a crazy assumption, especially when you look at what are the budget deficits likely to be over the next three years. Are they going to be going down? Not a chance. There's not a chance that the $1 trillion per quarter deficits that we're running now are going to be coming down over the next three years. Because first of all, we could easily have a recession at some point over the next three years. Even if it's not in 2024, it could be in 2025 or 2026. So we know by past experience and just by the way the automatic stabilizers work and the way Congress responds to any recession, if we have one, the national debt or the budget deficits are going to skyrocket. In fact, I want to look at the, uh, the national debt clock now just, just to see if we're, you know, if we're at $34 trillion yet. I haven't checked it, you know, in a couple of days. So we're at 33, almost $33.92 uh, trillion. So we still got a little ways to go. We need to get, or not that we need to get, I mean, we, I don't want to get there, but if we're going to um, be there in less than a, a quarter, in less than three months, then we need to hit $34 trillion by the 20th of this month. So that's in five more days. So I don't know that we're going to add $82 uh, billion to the national debt in the next five days. We'll see. We'll see how we go. But it's, we're very close to a trillion dollars added in just one single random, you know, three-month time period. But the point I was making is if we're registering these type of deficits when they're telling us we got a great economy, and again, we got more economic data that I'll, I'll, I'll get into that belies, you know, that, that claim, but taking it at face value, right, we've got some strong economy with a strong labor market, low unemployment, and we're running $1 trillion a quarter deficits. How much larger are those deficits going to be in a weak economy in a recession? They will be much larger. But even if we don't go into recession, if the economy stays on its current path, the deficits are still going to go up because as bonds mature and they need to be rolled over, they have to be rolled over at a higher rate of interest. And so that automatically increases government spending, which automatically increases the size of the deficits. Plus, we've got a lot of new spending programs that haven't even kicked in uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, I hate to even say that uh, with a straight face, but the, you know, Inflation Expansion Act or, you know, that, that's got a lot more stuff. The infrastructure bill or, you know, that law that there's more spending coming that's going to be uh, a part of that. And of course, you know, the, the spending just grows. I mean, more and more people in my generation, the baby boom, you know, we're retiring. And what does that mean? That means we stop paying Social Security taxes. So the government loses the revenue 
and now we start collecting the benefits. So the government's got to write bigger checks and we start getting you know, more uh, uh, Medicare benefits and stuff like that. So all these uh, entitlement programs get more and more expensive with each passing year. So to think that we're going to be cutting interest rates for the next three years while budget deficits are expanding and maybe expanding dramatically if we have a recession, that all this is going to be going on, all this expansionary stimulative monetary policy and fiscal policy, yet the declining inflation rate is going to continue on its same trajectory. There's no chance of that. Inflation is going to get worse. They, they have to know that, which means they've resigned themselves to the fact that inflation is going to get worse. They've surrendered, which is exactly what I said, because they think there is something much worse than inflation. They just don't want to mention it. Uh, but they, they, they definitely know about it. They not only uh, think about it, I'm sure they, they talk about it. And, and they're trying to do whatever they can uh, to, to postpone it. Anyway, let me get to a couple of economic numbers that, that did come out. Uh, today, we got the Empire State Manufacturing Index. And again, you know, you keep hearing the uh, Biden administration, you know, just like Trump. I mean, Trump did the same thing, trying to bla- brag about manufacturing, how great manufacturing is. We have a manufacturing renaissance. It seems like every president wants to claim it's a manufacturing renaissance, but there's no res- renaissance. It's, it's still the dark ages uh, in American manufacturing. But um, Empire State Manufacturing Index was supposed to rise. It was supposed to go to 3.7. That wasn't a rise. That would have been a decline from the prior month. But it was expected to stay in positive territory. And instead, it tanked all the way down to minus 14.5. So another very weak number for Empire State Manufacturing. And, you know, I, I checked on it just to see because this was the last uh, Empire State Manufacturing number of the year, right, the, the, the December number. So we're not going to get any more. And so I look back over the entirety of, uh, of the year, and it turns out that of the 12 numbers that we got, Seven were in negative territory, and only five were positive. But what's more significant is the, the size. So the average negative number for the seven negative uh, Empire State Manufacturing numbers, the average was minus 19. That's the average. So some were, were worse. But for the five Uh, numbers that were in positive territory, the average was just 5.8. So the down numbers, the bad numbers, were triple the good numbers. So overall, we had a very weak year for manufacturing in 2023. Despite all the hype about this great economy, it didn't extend to manufacturing, the actual production of goods. And I think as bad as it was, in 2023, I think it's going to be even worse in, in 2024. And in fact, we got the PMI composite you know, index, flash index, uh, for December today as well. And 
I don't know what the, the estimate was for the composite. I got the individual numbers for uh, the components, which are manufacturing and service. So you, you put them together and you get the composite. But the components are divided in, into two, manufacturing and services. And manufacturing was supposed to be 49.2, and it came out of 48.2. So a full point weaker than the weak number they expected. Now, the service sector was a little bit better. Uh, they were looking for 50.6, and they got 51.3. But I'm focusing here on manufacturing, which I think is the more important sector. Uh, and that one is the sector that's weak. And I think that's a, a bad indicator for what we're likely to see in, um, in 2020, um, 2024. Now, also, we got, I think it was yesterday, we got retail sales. And the markets were happy with the retail sale number because it was, it was you know, above expectations. They were looking for minus 0.1, and they got plus 0.3. Although the prior months was revised a little bit lower from minus 0.1 to minus 0.2. But the markets thought, oh, the consumer's doing good. They're, they're spending more money. They may be spending more money. But they're not buying more stuff. I've talked about that on this podcast. No one seems to get this. But retail sales are not measuring the volume of what's being sold. It is the price that is being paid to buy what got sold. And so it could very easily be rising prices that are the reason that retail sales are going up. Because after all, if the price of everything you buy went up, if you don't cut back, if you buy the same amount of stuff, but you pay higher prices, well, then retail sales went up. But are you better off because you spent more money to buy the same amount of stuff? No, you're not better off. You're worse off because you have less money saved. But what probably happened during the month of November was not only did people pay more, but because they paid more, they actually bought less. So I think the volume of sales is going down, even as the dollar price of what's being bought is going up. And also the composition. I bet a lot more of that money is being spent on food. So the supermarkets, the grocery stores, are seeing a bigger pickup in retail sales at the expense of some other stores that are selling less because customers don't have as much money left over after they buy their food. Because you have to buy food. Right? There are a lot of other things you don't have to buy. You have to buy food. Now, you can, you know, again, you can buy cheaper food, but you still have to eat. And you have to pay your rent. You got to pay your utilities. You got to pay your electric bill, right? Uh, there are certain things you got to pay. The price goes up, well, you got to pay the higher price. And that means you have less money left over to buy other things. But in aggregate, your spending doesn't go down. What changes is the composition of what you bought. So this is not really measuring the, the strength of the economy. To me, it's just another indication that inflation is being underreported, that prices are rising even faster 
than, uh, than everybody thinks. But that also means that monetary policy is easier than the Fed claims because they're relating their interest rates to inflation. But they're not looking at the actual inflation. They're looking at these contrived government measures that are designed on purpose to understate inflation. Uh, and, and so that means that they're not tight. They keep talking about how you know, we have restrictive monetary policy. No, we don't. In fact, historically, look back at where the Fed's fund rate has been you know, in the post-World War II era, or you know, even go to post-1971, you know, when we went off the gold standard, look at where the Fed funds rate has been. And this is probably on the low side of normal. Certainly, if you knock out the last 10 years of zero and figure out what the average rate of Fed funds was during that period, I mean, we're, we're not restrictive at all. You know, unless you think we just have so much less inflation now than we have in the past, which is not true. And of course, from a position of credit worthiness, the United States is far less credit worthy now than it was in the, in the 60s or 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, even the aughts, right? Because we have a lot more debt. The more debt you have, the, the less credit worthy you are, because the more you owe, the less you're likely to repay. And again, when it comes to a nation that's borrowing in its own currency, the more you owe, the more likely you are to print money to pay what you owe because you can't get it from your tax base. So the more debt you have, the higher the risk of inflating that debt away. And so we certainly have a much greater risk. And so because of that higher risk of future inflation, we should be paying a higher rate of interest because the lenders should demand that to compensate them for the added risk that's, that's being taken. Anyway, I want to switch gears, though, and talk a little bit about the political situation in Argentina, because it's something that's been going on, and I haven't really talked about it. It came up in the Q&A on Wednesday night for the Shift Premium members. Somebody asked me about it, and and I spoke about it. But if you haven't been paying attention, Javier Malay is now the president of Argentina. And what's significant about his election is that he is a libertarian. Um, and he is a, an outspoken firebrand of a libertarian. I mean, to me, he looks like he walked right out of an Ayn Rand novel, like right from the pages of Atlas Shrugged. I mean, I wish he was the president of the United States, right? I mean, I mean every country should have a guy like Javier Malay as president. So Argentina is very fortunate. Uh, to have elected a libertarian. And what's amazing is that a libertarian got elected in the first place, which should at least, you know, send out a ray of hope if they can elect a libertarian in Argentina. Maybe we could elect one here, right? I mean, we can't be that much dumber than, than they are. Now, one of the reasons I think that the Argentinian people are so desperate that they might actually vote for a sensible candidate is because things are so bad in Argentina. Inflation has been so high. They've got a real belly full of socialism. And so now when a guy like Millet, you know, lays it out, you know, cold and explains what these socialists have done, how they've wrecked the economy, you know, it resonates. 
And as I said, you know, once you get a big enough belly full of socialism, you're ready to barf it all up. That's why things have to get really bad. Now, maybe things in America have to get as bad as they are in Argentina for us to get a libertarian president, right? That would be the, you know, the silver lining to that cloud, right? Things, you know, we have to hit rock bottom, just like, you know, a guy, you know, he's got a drug problem or an alcohol problem, right? He's not going to admit he's got a problem and check himself into rehab until he hits rock bottom, right? He's, you know, he's, he's, you know, lying on the pavement, he's thrown up, you know, his wife left him, you know, he's lost his job. I mean, he's pretty much lost everything. His life is ruined. And now he admits he's got, he's got a, a problem. And, and so the voters might have to get in that shape because, you know, they, they've been beaten up pretty good uh, down there in, uh, in, in Argentina. But, you know, you can listen to some of uh, the stuff that Javier Malay is saying. He's saying it all in, in Spanish, you know, so if your Spanish isn't, isn't good, you know, you just got to look at the translation, which is pretty easy these days now on the Internet. So I'm able to, you know, just listen to everything translated or, you know, get the subtitles. Uh, you know, even though I live here in Puerto Rico, I mean, my Spanish stinks. You know, I mean, I was never any good at Spanish, even though I took years and years of Spanish when, when I was in, uh, in uh, school. Uh, but I still don't, don't really know it enough. But I, when I listen to the English or read the subtitles, I mean, the guy uh, speaks very, very well. I mean, he understands uh, how an economy grows. He understands uh, that resources are limited, but that uh, human desires are unlimited. And, you know, politicians are trying to, you know, claim that every time anything you want, you have a right to have. And you don't have that right. Um, you know, he understands that the best way to satisfy unlimited human desires with limited resources is through a free market, through capitalism. And he, he explains that very well uh, to the people and that the government doesn't have anything. You know, people tend to look at government uh, as if, you know, it's, 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 it just has a big, uh, you know, horn of plenty that, you know, whatever people want, government can just provide it. And if they're not providing it, it's because they're stingy, right? That they have everything and they just have to share it with us. The government doesn't have anything. The government only has what it takes. It has to redistribute wealth. It doesn't create wealth. And Malay talks about how they're all a bunch of parasites. They're takers. They don't produce anything, uh, these government bureaucrats. Uh, we have to support them. And so that's why it's always a negative sum game. When you have government stealing from some people and giving to other people, it is a net loss because you have to pay for the cost of government, right? There's a, there's a transfer. You know, my father used to explain government aid to me like this, and I've, I've mentioned it on my podcast before, but it's a great analogy, and I don't want to take credit for it because my father is the one that, that told me about it. Uh, but he said government aid is like giving yourself a blood transfusion from your right arm to your left arm, except you spill half the blood on the floor. That's what's going on. So what's better off is for the government to leave the wealth in the private sector, not redistribute it. And again, Malay talks about the fact that it's theft, that taxation is theft. And it is theft if it's not done for legitimate purposes, which are for the collective good, meaning the government spends the money for national defense, 
which in theory benefits all Americans who benefit from living in a, 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 a safer country. But if the government taxes one person and just takes that money and gives it to another person, no matter how much the other person might need the money, it's theft and it is wrong. It is morally wrong. It's, and in some cases, like America, it is legally wrong. It is unconstitutional. But you can't take money from somebody who earned it and give it to somebody who didn't. And it doesn't matter. Right. That's, you know, Robin Hood did that, but it was still theft. Now, you know, that doesn't mean I'm heartless or I don't care about uh, people who need money. I just want the people who have money to voluntarily give it to the people who need money. Now, if you don't think that's going to happen in a free society, then you just don't have a high opinion of your fellow man. You think men are inherently greedy and evil and they don't give a damn about the suffering of other people. And the only people who care are the people we elect and send to Washington, D.C. No, those are the people who don't give a damn. They just care about themselves. And they know the best way to enrich themselves is by going into politics. It's the people who don't want anything to do with politics that are far more likely to care. <laughs> and they're the ones that are out there actually producing. Because what, what do the poor people need? They need more food. They need more shelter. They need more clothing. The government doesn't provide any of that. All of the stuff that the poor people need to make them less poor is a function of the free market. People are poor because they don't have enough stuff. Government doesn't have any stuff. And the government doesn't create any stuff. All the government does is get in the way of the productive people, and the result is they produce less stuff. So government creates poverty. The free market, private individuals trying to enrich themselves through the invisible hand, they're eradicating poverty. They are creating abundance. The government creates scarcity. Malay knows that. He expresses that, articulates it, and the people voted for him. Instead of voting for somebody who promised to steal for them, he pro they voted for somebody who promised to liberate them from the looters, from the theft, and they bought it. So I'm hopeful. Uh, now, also, I'm hopeful they succeed. I don't want the powers that be to prevent him from succeeding. And then people say, you see, libertarianism doesn't work. Freedom doesn't work. No, it works. We just have to be able to try it. And I hope he doesn't give up. You know, I, Ronald Reagan wanted to do a lot of things that he gave up on because he, he ran into the political establishment, Tip O'Neill and all his buddies in Congress. He couldn't do what he wanted to do, the things he campaigned on. He wanted to get rid of the Department of Energy. He wanted to get rid of the Department of Education. They're still there. Nobody got rid of them. Uh, and so I can only imagine the bureaucracy in Argentina that Malay is going to have to deal with. But he's already starting. You know, he's apparently eliminated almost half of the government agencies or departments. Just yesterday, he, there was an official devaluation of the peso by 50%. Now, you might think, well, why is he doing that? That's not good. The, the, the real value of the peso is actually lower than where they just devalued it because that was the government's official exchange rate. On the black market, the peso was trading for less than half of the official rate. So all Malay did was try to adjust the fiction that the government was maintaining to the reality of the market. But what he really needs to do and what he is doing is cutting government spending. He recognizes that inflation, which has been plaguing Argentina, is the result of government spending. 
and he knows there's no way to reduce inflation without reducing government spending. And so you got to cut. You got to make cuts. And that's what he's starting to do. But the same thing that causes inflation in Argentina causes it in America. It's the same all over the world. It's government spending. And if you can't reduce inflation in Argentina without cutting government spending, well, then you can't reduce inflation in America without cutting government spending either. And since we're not cutting government spending, we're not going to get rid of inflation. In fact, we're increasing government spending, so we're going to have more inflation. It's just too bad we don't have a guy like Malay uh, on the ballot. Of course, if he was on the ballot, he would not win because we're not ready for that medicine yet. We're, just, we're not quite sick enough. Right. Americans still have too much prosperity. Yes, it's borrowed prosperity, but they're still able to borrow the money. They're still able to put food on the table. That's not going to be the case for much longer. We're going to have this dollar crisis. We're going to have an explosion in the cost of living. Things are going to get really, really bad, unfortunately. But maybe uh, we can follow in Argentina's example, because I've always said, you know, I've compared us to Argentina because people have said, hey, you know, are, you know, are we the next Japan? Because, you know, we're going to be running into their problems. And I would always say, no, 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 we're not going to be the next Japan. Japan's in much better shape than America. America's the next Argentina. Well, to the extent that we can elect a libertarian president, I sure hope America is the next Argentina. Anyway, the final thing I wanted to mention uh, on, on the podcast, and I just read about this today. And I didn't even know about this defamation lawsuit. I mean, because I just knew about my own, right? I didn't know about this other one. Um, But um, Rudolph Giuliani was sued by um, a couple of ladies, a mother and daughter. Um, Happened to be African-American. I guess that's irrelevant, but that was also part of the story I read. But so they're African-American mother-daughter. And they worked in the polls. I guess, that, you know, they, they helped collect the votes. And so I guess that was their career, right? They, were, they worked at electing polls, which I can't imagine that's too lucrative a career because how often is there an election, right? I mean, maybe once a year, right? So you can't really make that much money, you know, working these polls. In fact, a lot of people work these polls. They're volunteers. They don't even get paid. But so Rudy Giuliani, I don't even know what he said, but he, he basically accused them of kind of rigging the election at their station. Like somehow they were, I don't know, they were getting in the way of Trump voters and, and, and trying to do something to kind of influence the way the votes were being cast in, in, in their station, right? So they said this, and maybe it wasn't true. Maybe he didn't have any proof of it. But, but they sued for defamation, right? Because, you know, they claim that, oh, you, you ruined our careers, Right. Which, again, probably weren't that lucrative of a career. And I don't know how it ruined their careers, but they did say they had a lot of mental anguish, uh, that they got a lot of phone calls from racists and other people who were saying mean things to them, which, you know, maybe they got a few phone calls like that. I can't imagine that they were just really, you know, overrun uh, you know, day after day after day. You know, sure, maybe they got some crank calls, maybe some. Some people found their numbers and, you know, look, someone calls you on the phone and they you hang up. I mean, it's, it's, it's yes. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a bad thing that, that they got uh, harassed and people called them names. But, you know, sticks and stones. Right. I mean, 
Nobody, nobody actually physically harmed these ladies. But anyway, they just won their defamation lawsuit. And they got awarded $148 million. Million dollars. How crazy is that? I mean, these women won't earn $148 million in, in, in several lifetimes. I mean, and it's not anything against these women. Most people don't earn $148 million, even split in half. So you're like 70, you know, $75 million each. People don't earn $75 million in a lifetime. And their children and their grandchildren, all combined, most people, aren't going to earn that much money. This is not a defamation win. This is a, a windfall. This is like winning the lottery. Right? These women, if they ever get this money, because I don't think Rudy Giuliani has it, and he can declare bankruptcy. But assuming they could get the money, right, the best thing that ever happened to them was that they got defamed by Giuliani. In fact, yeah, let them defame me. Say some bad things about me. I could use an extra $148 million too. So could anybody. I mean, that's how you know an award is insane. If you would trade places with the person who won it, right? So you're not going to feel sorry for them. Oh, I, I, it's so bad that this happened to you, that Giuliani said these bad things about you. No, they're getting $148 million. Yeah, again, you'd want to trade places with them. You know, so th- this is how out of whack our legal system is, that you get an award like this. And this happens, you know, U.S. juries are out of control with all kinds of settlements, you know, with these punitive damages. I mean, sometimes they're in the billions against these, you know, big companies. You know, compare that to what happened to me in Australia. Because the, the misinformation that was spread about me, that I was committing crimes, that I was, you know, uh, uh, helping organize criminals and, uh, and, and, and drug traffickers. Right? I was basically banking the mob. I was Tony Soprano's uh, personal banker. I was working with the dregs of society, right? To, to help them steal money and, and launder money. And they destroyed my banking career. I mean, a banking career is far more lucrative than their polling careers. I lost a, a high-paying career in banking, and I lost my entire bank, tens of millions of dollars, maybe, maybe a lot more than that. And I certainly had as much anguish. I mean, yeah, I didn't get any phone calls. I didn't get any death threats. But, you know, it did cause me a lot of stress. Uh, a lot of aggravation is still causing me stress and aggravation. How much did I get? Well, 550,000 Australian dollars plus, you know, 80%, 85% of my legal costs back. That's it. And in fact, when you take, because my legal costs were about 100, one and a quarter million Australian dollars. So I'm probably going to end up maybe getting a million back if I'm lucky. So I'm still out of pocket 250. That's half what I want. That's half to 550. So let's say I won $250,000. What's that in American money? $150,000 for me <laughs> compared to uh, uh, $148 million for these ladies? You know, I mean, it, it, it's not even close to being in the same ballpark. Now, I don't, look, I, I don't think I deserve $148 million. I mean, you know, it's possible that my bank would have been worth that much. I mean, maybe I do deserve $148 million. Maybe that's how much I lost. But these awards should be commensurate with what you could have lost. 
Now, again, in Australia, the problem was the, the damage to your reputation was capped. I actually got more than the cap, but they don't differentiate. If you defame a plumber and the plumber says, you hurt my reputation and I'm not going to earn as much money as a plumber because some of the people that were going to hire me as a plumber may not hire me because you said I was a lousy plumber. Well, how much income can a plumber lose? Well, let's say the plumber made 100000 a year. You know, maybe, maybe he lost 20% of his you know, ability to make money, so maybe he's making eighty. So he lost 20000 a year. Okay. But what if somebody uh, has a job where they earn a lot more than that? And they earn that money off their reputation, like maybe they're, you know, in financial services or that, like I am or in banking. And let's say they're making millions of dollars a year or tens of millions of dollars a year. And somebody damages their reputation and they lose 20 or 30 or 40 percent of their income. It's a much bigger loss, but it's still subject to the same cap. Everybody is treated the same. Everybody's reputation has the same value. Even if one person's reputation is able to earn them a lot more money than the other. So I think the Australian system is still not quite fair, but it's not nearly as out of whack as the U.S. system where a lawsuit is a lottery ticket. I mean, there's no way people should be able to win this kind of money and these kind of punitive damages that are being awarded by these out-of-control juries. And in this case, it's really about punishing Giuliani because, you know, they get a jury that doesn't like Trump and, you know, they just want to send this message and punish this guy, right? And, And this is what they do. And they just award a windfall, you know, because the juries are fine. They're, they're happy to take money away from some rich guy they don't like and give it to some poor guy or gal that they do like. Uh, and the judge is supposed to stop this. You know, to think that juries always get it right. <laughs> you know what? They, they, they rarely seem to get it right. I don't have a lot of faith in the jury system. There's been a lot of bad verdicts on the criminal side and on the civil side by, by these juries. And, of course, the problem is the jury pool, a bunch of brainwashed Americans. I mean, who do you think gets on these juries anyway? Because the people that are actually smarter, that are out there working, they find a reason to get out of jury duty. They can't afford to be on jury because they got to work. You get a lot of people that don't have jobs, either because they're, you know, on welfare uh, or they've retired uh, or for whatever reason, they're not in the workforce. And so they're the ones that are on jury duty. And I think that by and large, that taints the jury pool uh, against against certain people. You don't really get a jury of your peers, right? When none of your peers are actually working, and 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 they're you know they're 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 coming up with these kind of crazy awards. But I just thought that was you know particularly you know hit hard, home hard for me to just see these women, you know that maybe they deserve something, but nowhere near 148 million dollars. And you know what? Giuliani may have been accurate. I don't really know enough about the case. Maybe they did do exactly what Rudy Giuliani accused them of doing. I don't know. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that Giuliani was wrong. There's no way they should be cashing a $148 million paycheck or anything close to that. But I should be getting a much bigger paycheck uh, than the one that I got uh, from these a huge public company that deliberately lied about me to the audience lied, misrepresented uh, the facts, 
uh, uh, doctored their own evidence. I mean, it was a horrible, again, go online, look at the interview with me, uh, look at the way they sliced and diced it. You know, if you, if you Google or if you go on YouTube and go Nick McKenzie, the first two videos that come up are the two that I posted, which is good. And I want to make sure that they're always on top. So again, watch them, comment on them. Uh, but I'm going to be putting out more, more context. You know, I got a lot more evidence. I haven't put any of it up yet. I've been too busy um, about, about this case. Anyway, have a great weekend, everybody. I'll be back next week uh, with another podcast. So make sure and uh, not, not to miss it.